0: All right, English 325, welcome back. Small group here on Zoom, but uh, we'll, we'll, we'll make it through today with a, a, a quite a different uh, set of readings to start this week and to finish out the next couple of weeks. So let me share my screen um,
1: and, and let's get started here. Everybody see that? Everybody see that, that strapping gentleman there?
0: Look at that guy's hands, I've just noticed this. His hands are kind of off, kind of weird, kind of strange. Look at his hands, something weird about that. Anyways, this is William Dean Howells. We read a little thing from William Dean Howells today um, that we'll get into in a minute, but I just have put on the post here some of our objectives, right? So if you'll recall, prior to um, Thanksgiving break, we spent two weeks thinking through the various aspects of an artistic movement, literary movement, called romanticism. So we read three short stories by Nathaniel Hawthorne, and then we read uh, two days worth of Whitman and a day worth of Dickinson. We talked about all of those texts under the auspices, under the guise of this idea of romanticism, this literary movement that has particular emphases in terms of its style, in terms of its form, and also in terms of its subject matter, okay? Romanticism, was the most popular, the kind of um, foundational artistic or literary mode in the middle of the 19th century in the United States. So starting around, let's say 1830 and going all the way to around 1860, the most prominent, the most important literary movement or artistic movement in the United States was Romanticism. When we go into the second half of the 19th century, which is of course what we're gonna move to in the last two weeks of this class, when you go to the second half of the 19th century, you move away from what's called romanticism and you move toward a new artistic or literary movement. And that new artistic or literary movement is called, you may have guessed it, realism. Okay, so not romanticism. Now we are gonna be talking for the last two weeks about realism. So we are actually Zooming in more ways than one today. We're Zooming because we're all Zooming together online, but we're also Zooming into the future, right? We ended class prior to Thanksgiving around, let's say, 1855, 1860. Today we're reading something from the last decades of the 19th century, so 1887, and everything that we'll really read from here on out is going to be in from about 1885 to about 1900. So we're really zooming about 30 years almost to the end of the century as we begin this next and last unit of the class, okay? So again, we're moving from Romanticism to Realism, a completely new artistic and literary tradition or movement that has um, different um, characteristics, different themes, different focuses, And is in many respects a response to Romanticism. So we're going to talk about that today. We're going to define the characteristics of realism by talking a little bit about William Dean Howells' short piece that we read. And then we're also going to discuss the reasons for the prominence of realism. So we talked about, if you recall, the characteristics of Romanticism back when we were doing Hawthorne. And we talked about the reasons for the prominence of Romanticism back when we were doing Hawthorne. We're going to do that again today, but instead of with Romanticism, we're going to be doing it with realism, right? So if you recall from Romanticism, right, we said Romanticism was defined by elevated diction, complex syntax, intrusive narration, by a kind of filtered sense of reality. We talked about how Romanticism was the result of political and industrial revolutions over the course of the end of the 18th century into the 19th century. Those were the kind of characteristics and reasons for the prominence of romanticism. Today, we're gonna to go into the characteristics and reasons for prominence of realism as well. So let's start here with this slide. Thinking and speaking of Thanksgiving. Okay. I like to use this slide when I teach this class in the fall, I think it's really a useful, uh, image to kind of point towards what we're talking about when we transition from romanticism to realism. So think to your, your Thanksgiving meal. Was yours more like a romantic Thanksgiving or a
1: realistic one? Of course, these are exaggerations, but what was yours most like, more like? Now, I'm not saying like who had Budweiser's on the table and and ate KFC,
0: but I'm saying like, does, did your Thanksgiving meal, like, was it perfect? Everybody gathered around with big smiles on their faces, everybody dressed up, grandma and papa or mom and dad putting that big, beautiful brown bird on the table, like, or was it something closer to what we see on the right side of the screen? Yeah, Caitlin, yours was more like on the right side of the screen what do you mean when you say that obviously like I'm assuming Kayla tell me if I'm wrong I'm assuming that like you didn't have like a a can of Budweiser in front of you and and your parents didn't
1: serve you fried chicken out of a cardboard bucket but what do you mean when you say that it was closer to realism Uh, it was a lot more informal considering like the circumstances like
2: we like couldn't eat we really, couldn't really like eat together, so it was kind of like just us and not like trying i wore my pajamas all day and just didn't think
0: yeah so there's this kind of covid aspect to this as well right where because we're all kind of like locked down a bit and maybe potentially not seeing a lot of family that would have been traveling otherwise there's a kind of informality that was certainly the case in my my context we hosted thanksgiving we had a pretty small crowd it was just that family who is in town that we see often and we have a bunch of little kids and so like uh you know we, we didn't like have kfc or anything but the kids are all running around and throwing things and like you know spilling shit and throwing up or whatever you know like it's not like this romantic beautiful um kind of uh interaction what about other people more like your thanksgiving more like romanticism or realism what I had one guy way back in the day, one student, he was like this very kind of like clean cut guy who I brought up this slide and everybody was like, yeah, my, my Thanksgiving is more like the realistic one. That is to say, like, it's a little more informal. Everything is not perfectly placed on the table. Like and not everybody has a smile on their faces, whatever. I had one guy, very clean cut guy who was like, yeah, actually my Thanksgiving looks just like romanticism. But he's been the only one, right? Which is to say that most people's experience of this holiday is not the kind of idealized sense that we have in our heads, okay? The idealized sense of Thanksgiving that we have in our heads, right, is the beautifully browned bird coming to the beautifully set table, everyone around the table smiling and waiting politely, right, and getting together and everybody being um, super accommodating and happy, right? Everybody kind of filtering around this table and being perfect and on their best behavior. That's not actually, generally speaking, what happens. It tends to be more informal, more lighthearted, a little more disjointed, a little more chaotic. That is to say that this holiday tends to be a little more real, right? As opposed to idealized, okay? So I like putting these two images up because it gives us a really nice visual representation, a visual cue for the turn that we're making in the last two weeks of this class from romanticism that idealizes experiences, right? That doesn't present us with the world as it actually is, but presents us with a world that has a filter, that is idealized, that is exaggerated or made epic or made heroic or emphasizing particular aspects and deleting strategically others. That's what romanticism does, right? That's what the image on the left of your screen does. What we're moving to at the end of the 19th century, and what we're moving to in the last two weeks of this class is realism, right? That, as you know from having read the Howells, presents us with a depiction of life as it has actually lived. Honest truthful straightforward right presents us with life not with a filter covering up the bad parts quote unquote but with a uh no filter at all right just showing us exactly what life is like now you know that's not this is obviously an exaggeration on the right like it's a parody you know uh your grandma's probably not smoking a cigarette as she plops KFC down on the Thanksgiving table. Although if she is, I'd like to meet her and I'd like to know more about her. But, um, but it's kind of like not as, not as clear and, and precise and, and idealized as, uh, as the image on the left would have us assume. Although I will say I'm a vegetarian, but it was on me to cook the turkey this year and I cooked a damn good turkey. I fucking killed that thing. It was beautiful. It was beautiful and everybody said it tasted great. I wouldn't know but everybody said it tasted great. Any questions about the difference here between romanticism and realism in terms of just in the in its broad outlines? Okay two different literary movements romanticism is characterized by many of the things that we talked about right before break. It's in the mid-century in the United States And then realism is the next literary movement that actually comes out of as a response to romanticism, and it takes us up right through 1900, which is where I deposit you off into the warm, loving embrace of English 326, if you haven't taken it before, right? Okay, so let's move on, let's talk a little bit more about what Howells is saying, right? So the question that I asked you guys was to think about this weird little anecdote that Howells uses about the grasshopper. And he uses this anecdote to exemplify his argument about the function and purpose of literature. So the quotes that I put up on the screen here don't actually have to do with the grasshopper. I just wanted to use the grasshopper as a kind of um, entry into these quotations. So does anybody remember There's only a couple people here, so, you know, we'll see if we can get uh, somebody to speak up, but but does anybody remember what um, Howells says about the grasshopper? What type of grasshopper does he want? If you look on your screen here, you see a sketch of a grasshopper, an idealized one, one that Howells would say comes from a science textbook, and then you see a real grasshopper, right? Which grasshopper does Howells want? Does anybody kind of recall or pick up on that from the reading?
2: Uh, I think he wanted us or he was like wanted the real grasshopper uh, rather than like the mechanical or cardboard ones that he was describing.
1: Yeah,
0: he uses like cardboard mechanical, right? But what he's trying to suggest is that what he doesn't want is the type of grasshopper that you would see in like uh, a science textbook. Right, that you would see as the idealized, perfected representation of the grasshopper. And you might see the idealized or perfected representation of the grasshopper in the uh, image at the top of the screen, Right, the idealized, perfected representation of the grasshopper. Howells doesn't want that. What Howells wants is the real representation of the grasshopper. Maybe the grasshopper that has kind of mottled ugly, brownish, greenish skin. Maybe the grasshopper that has one antenna but lost the other one in a terrible diving accident. Maybe the grasshopper that only has three legs, right? That's what Howells wants. Howells wants the grasshopper that actually speaks to and represents the realities of life, okay? So he says, get out of here with the idealized, perfected, perfectly sketched out representation of the grasshopper, right? We don't want any of that. We want the real grasshopper whose uh, like, um, legs are full of mud and shit, right? That's what Howells wants. Howells wants that real representation, okay? And really, what you read for today is in, in many respects a critique of romanticism, right? Because what does romanticism want in terms of the grasshoppers? The type of grasshopper that romanticism wants is it wants the idealized one, right? Think about the artist of the beautiful, that first story that we read of Hawthorne, right? He makes this mechanical bug, right? Because like real bugs are not good enough, right? He makes this mechanical bug, right? That's what romanticism wants. Romanticism wants the idealized, perfected, exaggerated, every little piece of the bug exactly framed out drawn exactly right to scale anatomically correct in every regard right that's what romanticism wants to show us realism wants to show us how in our actual lives people have imperfections right people have like strange little scales on the back of their legs right weird weird stuff right, that maybe not every grasshopper has, but this individual grasshopper does. That's what Howells wants. And he wants that because he sees, at the end of the 19th century, that earlier artistic traditions like Romanticism no longer speak to the realities of the United States, right? And we're gonna talk through that when we talk through these quotations, okay? This text that you read for today, a couple pages long, is really the manifesto for the realist tradition. William Dean Howells was the editor of a really influential literary magazine in the 1880s called The Atlantic Monthly. The Atlantic is actually still around, it's the same magazine, but he was the literary editor of The Atlantic Monthly. And so from that vantage due to that position, William Dean Howells was incredibly influential as to what type of literature became popular and was judged as valuable. And so William Dean Howells, when he writes this kind of manifesto for the realist tradition, he's really suggesting that um, the type of literature he wants, which is to say the type of literature that he wants to give to the general American populace is a realist literature, not a romantic one. It's a clean and firm break from what comes before. So let's read a couple of these quotes and kind of talk through some of the themes of realism, and then maybe some of the formal or stylistic elements as well. And then we'll end class today talking about some of the historical circumstances that necessitate this move from romanticism to realism. So
1: Howell says, "'We must ask ourselves before we ask anything else, "'is it true, true
0: to the motives the impulses, the principles that shape the life of actual men and women. This is William Dean Howell's most fundamental question that he asks of
1: literature. Okay. Is it true? What do you think he means by that? Is it true? It's not just, did it happen? That's not what he's saying, right? Truth is not,
0: it happened or it didn't happen. He's not suggesting that like it can't be fictional. So what is he suggesting? Again, he's not suggesting that literature should be nonfiction. So it's not, he's not talking about truth in that regard. He's not saying that you can't imagine
1: things and create things. So what what does he mean when he says true? More along the lines of, is it realistic? Yeah. Yeah, that seems so simple,
0: Caitlin, but that's a really important distinction that we have to draw out here, right? It's not true as in, did it happen? He's not suggesting that like you can't write a novel that imagines a circumstance that doesn't actually occur. What, when he says, is it true? What he is saying, is it realistic? That's a really nice way of putting it. True to. Is it aligned with, consonant with the motives, the impulses, and the principles that shape the lives of actual men and women. So William Dean Howells doesn't care about whether the actions in the novel actually occurred. He doesn't care about whether the actions are, quote unquote, true, whether they actually occurred. He cares about whether the motives, impulses, and principles are true, okay? That is to say, can you imagine those actions and the motives underneath them to have occurred in real life? Even if they don't, can you imagine them to have occurred? That's what Howells is talking about. And realistic, as Caitlin says, that's exactly the right word to use to describe what Howells is, is suggesting here. He's suggesting that when you pick up a piece of literature, it needs to be not true in an objective sense, not like this happened or didn't, it needs to be true in the sense of we have to understand the motives and the impulses as coming from the real world it has to be realistic okay go back to those images about thanksgiving right one is a little more realistic than the other obviously it's an exaggeration right but one is romanticized or idealized the other is realistic it's true to the motives the impulses, right? Even if you don't get a big bucket of KFC on your table, the motive or impulse behind that image is that our Thanksgiving dinner table is a little more chaotic, right? It's a little more um, willy-nilly. It's a little more like not everything that you put on the the table is going to be completely hot right when you set it down, right? There's going to be those green, that green bean casserole is going to be burnt. Right? There's a kind of truth to the impulse or the motivations behind the actions that are occurring in the literature. Okay? So this is a big question that, I, that we get and we have to push through. When Howell says, is it true? Again, he's not suggesting that you can't write something fictional. He's suggesting that the fiction that you write has to be realistic. It has to be true to motives and impulses that underlie the fictional actions, okay? All right, so let's move on from that. The second quote is really a criticism of romanticism, and I wanna talk about kind of how it functions as a criticism of romanticism. So he says, it is the conception of literature as something apart from life, superfinely aloof, which makes it really unimportant to the great mass of mankind without a message or a meaning for them, And it is the notion that a novel may be false in its portrayal of causes and effects that makes literary art contemptible, that means hateable, uh, even to those whom it amuses, that forbids them to regard the novelist as a serious or right minded person. Okay, so what is Howell's critique of romanticism here? Why does he say that romanticism is wrong or
1: bad, incorrect? What is his critique of romanticism? that maybe
2: it's when i looked up aloof that means like distant so like by putting the filter on and like emphasizing only like the beautiful you're ignoring the real truth like he's saying of like the real world and by doing that you're not going to be able to reach as many people because it's not real like like hawthorne like the there's no real like flower poison girl you know like that's not true like that would never happen so it, it's kind of hard to like enjoy that and relate to it when it's so unrealistic i guess is kind of what he's saying
0: <laughs> yeah the Rappuccini's daughter example is really good for what Howells is saying here Hows is suggesting like literature that asks us to imagine a magical secret garden in 15th century italy where a woman who touches a plant herself becomes poisonous, like that doesn't do anything for us, right? Because it's so far, so distant, so aloof from our actual lives that it has no bearing on them. This is the important step that Howells makes here. He says not just that romantic literature is apart from life, that it's distanced from life, but that The fact that romantic literature is distanced from life makes it unimportant to people. And that's why people don't want to read it. It's unimportant. It doesn't have a message for them. It doesn't have a meaning for them. They find it contemptible, right? And they find the author to be not serious or right-minded, right? Because it's false in its portrayal, okay? Okay. So what Howells is saying here is that you need to have literary art that connects closely to the actual lives of real people. And if you have literary art that connects closely to the actual lives of real people, those real people will find literature to be important. They will find literature to be important because that literature will have a meaning for them it will have a message for them. What Howells is suggesting is those Hawthorne short stories don't really have a meaning or a message for the people who read them, right? Because those real people who are reading those stories, they can't see themselves in those settings. They don't understand those characters, right? Those characters are so distant from them that they have no connection to them whatsoever, right? So what Howells is saying is that we need literature that connects to the reality of life. Romanticism is a type of literature that distances us from the realities of life. By idealizing life, by filtering over the deficiencies or eccentricities of life, it takes us away from those realities. And when romantic literature takes us away from those realities, it um, no longer has a message or a meaning for the vast majority of readers. right? Part of what Howells is doing here, which we don't really have time to get into, is that he's trying to democratize literature. He's trying to bring literature to the masses. He's trying to send literature across the wide expanse of the United States in the late 19th century. He's trying to suggest that we need to write a type of literature that most Americans can read and can get something out of. We want to write a type of literature that people are actually going to enjoy, right? And get something out of, take meaning from. And implicitly he's critiquing romanticism for not doing that, right? For being kind of elevated and high-minded and using a bunch of symbols and setting itself in mystical Italian landscapes, right? Howells wants none of that. Howells wants a story set in a realistic context with realistic people doing realistic things and saying realistic
1: thoughts. Okay. Any questions on that on Howell's critique of romanticism? Okay. So we've talked a little bit about
0: some of these thematic distinctions between romanticism and realism, right? Howells wants a kind of real, truthful, honest, organic, appraisal of life in literature, whereas the romantics want something else. What about in terms of style or form? This is where kind of the last quote gets us, right? So if if, um, Howells wants in terms of theme, something real, honest, organic, and truthful, in terms of form, what is he asking for? He says, the young writer who attempts to report the phrase and carriage of everyday life, who tries to tell just how he has heard men talk and seen them look is made to feel guilty of something low and unworthy by the stupid people who would like to have him show how Shakespeare's men talked and looked. He is instructed to idealize his personages. Personages just means character here. He is instructed to idealize his characters, that is to take the lifelikeness out of them and put the literary likeness into them, okay? So again, there's a critique of romanticism here. What is the critique of romanticism? Remember back to Hawthorne again. How do Hawthorne's characters talk? Do they talk like you and I? Do they talk like what you imagine a 19th century American to talk like? What do you think?
1: I see some shaking heads, but just put some words under that.
2: No, they, they talk with, like he said, like elevated, diction and like they use all these like words that I have to look up in the dictionary
0: (laughs) (laughs) so there's like really elevated diction which is characteristic not only of Hawthorne as a writer but all of his characters who are speaking right also that complex syntax where the sentences just run on forever and they they're like really complicated right um also like you'll notice in Hawthorne like his characters use like um formal anachronisms like like doth and vow, like language that we understand to be more kind of aligned with Shakespeare's time, right, doth and vow, than we do understand it to be aligned with 19th century America, right? Howell says, why are your characters talking like they're from 16th century Britain? Like your characters should talk like the people who are actually reading your literature. They should talk like 19th century Americans, right? He's suggesting that when we make our characters like talk like Shakespeareans, or when we make our characters have the carriage of um, uh, earlier times, right? The way they interact with people, the way they hold themselves. He's suggesting that when we do that, we drain the life out of them right? We take the life likeness out of them. He's suggesting that when we make our characters kind of speak with elevated diction, or when we use complex syntax, or when we set our characters in these fanciful locales, what we do is we drain the life out of them. And instead of having, putting life into them, we put literariness into them. And for Howells, that's a bad thing, right? Romanticism is self-consciously literary. Howells doesn't want that. Howells doesn't want literature to be self-consciously literary. Instead, he kind of wants it to be something else, and the thing that he wants it to be, we kind of get a clue towards it when he uses the word report. When he says the young writer who attempts to report the phrase, the manner of speaking, and the carriage, the way of being in the world, of everyday life. So why is the word report here important for Howells, do you think? What's the difference between
1: um, reporting and let's say inventing? What's the difference between those two things? Would reporting just be more of identifying something that's already been created?
0: Precisely, right? Reporting means identifying, right? Reporting means you look out in the world as it actually occurs. It's great, Sarah. You look out in the world as it actually occurs, and you see how people are talking. You see how people are holding themselves, their carriage, right? And then you just reflect it back in your fiction, right? That's what Howells wants us to do. It's actually a little more journalistic than it is imaginative. Right, He's suggesting that an author, a literary author, should report as opposed to wholly create. He should report instead of idealize. Right, So you should just take in what you see and reflect it back in your fiction. That is obviously not what somebody like Hawthorne does. Hawthorne doesn't just look around him and reflect back what he sees. No, he like looks at these grand, big philosophical ideas and then he decides to set his literature in 15th century Italy, right? What Howells is saying is, no, we want a writer who's going to see the phrase and carriage of everyday life and then report it in their own work. How men talk and how they look exactly, minutely, precisely, almost as if you're doing something more journalistic than you are imaginative. He says that you know people who uh, are proponents or advocates of romanticism, they make realist writers feel um, unworthy or valueless. And Howells is saying no, it's actually much more difficult and also much more valuable to report the realities of life around you than it is to imagine, whole cloth, some new world. It's actually harder Howell says, and more valuable to put the lifelikeness of something into your fiction
1: than it is to put the literary likeness of something into your fiction, right? It's easy to say that your Thanksgiving dinner
0: was like perfect and the turkey was absolutely cooked to perfection and everybody around the table was smiling and happy. It's easy to say that, right? We can just idealize that situation. It's a lot harder to be precise and specific with how it wasn't that way, with how it was actually a realistic occasion that had foibles and people falling off their chairs or whatever, right? A fire in the oven, I don't know. That didn't happen to me, but maybe it happened to to you. So that all makes sense, that distinction that Howells wants to draw and what he wants to valorize.
1: Truthful, honest, organic portrayals of real life. Realistic portrayals.
0: Again, he's not suggesting that you can't have fiction. He's not suggesting that uh, you have to completely be journalistic and only report what you see. What he's suggesting is that when you construct this fictional world, when you make up actions for your fictional characters to undertake, Those actions, right, those thoughts, those beliefs, down deep inside of them, in their intentions, in their motivations, they have to be real. They have to make sense to your reader, right? They have to be realistic. They have to be things that your reader can connect to. And if your reader can connect to those things, that means that your literature is going to
1: have meaning for them, and they're going to be invested in it and interested in it they're not going to find it contemptible, okay? Questions about that? Okay, all right, so let's move on. This last slide I have is kind of um, just goes over some of the historical
0: circumstances that necessitated the move from romanticism to realism. So there's really three big kind of causes, right, contexts that precipitate the move from romanticism to realism. And I want to talk over them today, but we're going to rehearse these over the course of the next two weeks. So if you don't kind of get all of the details here, that's okay. We're going to come back to them, right? Okay, so realism flourishes in the latter half of the 19th century. What happens in the world that kind of pulls American literary uh, traditions? from romanticism to realism in this time. There's really three things. One is immigration and expansion, which I'll talk about in a minute. Another is the rise of industrial capitalism and the stratification of wealth, I'll describe that. And the third is the Civil War and its aftermath. All three of these things happen in the second half of the 19th century, and they cause or precipitate this change from a romantic perspective in literature from somebody like Hawthorne to a realistic perspective in literature, to somebody like Howells, okay? So the first one, the first context for realism, why romanticism turns into realism is immigration and expansion. Um, I'll just use myself as an example, right? My, both sides of my family came to this country through basically Ellis Island, like through New York harbors in the uh, last decades of the 19th century, right? I have Italian, People in my background, I have like Hungarian Germans in my background, they all came through New York Harbor at the end of the 19th century, right? This was a massive period of immigration and expansion in the United States, right? Thousands and thousands, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people streamed in to the United States from, in this period, places in Western Europe predominantly, right? central and western Europe. So as a result of this massive influx of immigration and expansion, we have all these quote-unquote new people here, right? All these new people having new experiences. Why would realism be something that we need to uh, account for all these new experiences or new people, right? Why would realism be the literary style that we move to as a result of immigration and expansion? right? All of these new people in uh, our country, quote unquote, all of these new people having new experiences, speaking different languages, often talking in strange new dialects, right? Having different kind of histories and family groupings, right? Why would realism be something that we need in this time period? Any thoughts? I just ask you to speculate.
1: Why would realism be up to the task of this new situation? What do you think? Ideas?
2: Uh, maybe because like with using like common language and like common themes like you're accounting for people who are learning English maybe or like they don't know or they're not probably well educated in like symbolism and all these like really uncommon words you know so it's easier for them to be able to like read something that they read or can pick up at a bookstore um, in comparison to like the romantic style.
0: Great. And and Jasmine, in the first couple of things you said, you really nicely made that bridge between what we talked about when we talked about Whitman and where we are now, right? You can really think about Whitman as a hinge point between the romantics and the realists, right? Because one thing we did say about Whitman is that he uses common language and common topics as opposed to exaggerated or idealized ones. And one of the reasons why, as we talked about last week, is that Whitman was, as we said, the poet of democracy. He wanted to bring everyone into the fold. And this is really what Howells wants to do as well. We get this massive influx of new immigrants from Western and Central Europe. They have new experiences, right? They are different, quote unquote, from us, quote unquote. How do we integrate these new people into the nation, right? How do we begin to learn about these new people? How do these new people begin to learn about us and thus become quote unquote Americans as opposed to Italians who now live in New York? Right? That's a process. You don't just step off of Ellis Island and become quote unquote American if you've lived your entire life in Rome, right? It's a process. So how do you do that? Well, Howells believed that literature had a role to serve in making these new people part of this growing. American nation. He thought that the lifelike depiction of people's experiences through realistic literature would allow people who came from entirely different places, in many respects didn't even know how to speak to each other, had completely different experiences. He thought that the lifelike depiction of realistic experiences in literature could actually bring those people together. Right? He thought that if you were able to show in simple, clear, plain, honest prose, truthful prose, the lives of these new people, to people who have already been here for decades or centuries, he thought that it would actually allow those people to come together, right? To form what we might call a sympathetic attachment with one another. Remember, these people are separated by massive geographical and cultural divides. Massive, right? Somebody stepping off a boat from Hungary in in 1891 has very little to do with someone who's been in America for a century and a half, whose family has been in America for a century and a half. How do you bring these people together? How do you make these people both into Americans? Howells thought that one of the ways you do that is you provide lifelike portrayals of these different people's experiences, right? And you share them widely in an effort to make people feel as if they are all of one country, okay? So that's one of the reasons why realism comes to the fore in the second half of the 19th century. It's because we get all of these new people, right, coming into the country. They have different experiences and different histories, the question becomes, how do we make all of these new people into one thing? How do we make all of these different people into Americans? How do we include all of these new people within the auspices of our nation, culturally, politically, socially? Howells believe that one of the ways you do that is you write realist literature, a type of literature that allows us to understand other people, because we are provided with lifelike and realistic depictions of their lives, okay? Realist literature allows us to kind of peek behind the curtain, pull back that filtered reality, and see people for who they really are. And if we can see people for who they really are, we can form a sympathetic attachment to them. If we can form a sympathetic attachment to them, we can become compatriots with them. We can become citizens along with them, not in distinction to them, or in antagonism to them. That's a very idealized idea, a very idealized principle from Howells, like the idea that literature would do such a thing, but that's what he believed. Okay, any questions on that? And again, we're going to rehearse these again as we move forward in the course of the next couple of weeks. Any questions on immigration and expansion as a context for realism? Okay. The second one is um, what I'm calling kind of wordily, uh, the rise of industrial capitalism and the stratification of wealth. So let me just set the, the, the stage for this. Um, has anybody read the, the Jungle by Upton Sinclair? It's often a text that people read. No, oh, okay. Um, Sarah, you have, did you shake your head? Yeah, this is, a, this is a text that comes out around this time. And so I wanna kind of make reference to that if we can. It's
1: definitely a weird read for yeah. sure.
0: It's a a weird read. It's an expose. It's a fictionalized expose of the kind of um, meatpacking industry in Chicago at the end of the 19th century. And it's a paradigmatic example of realist literature. Right. And I just, it's a a really important context for what we're about to talk about. So in the second half of the 19th century, we call this time period in American history, the Gilded Age. I'm going to write that In the chat, the Gilded Age. Does anybody know why we call
1: it the Gilded Age or what gilded means? What does it mean to gild something?
2: I don't necessarily know what gild means, but I do remember it's like when like the Rockefellers and like, but just like a bunch of people were making like a ton of money.
0: Gobs of money, right? These are the first Rockefellers, JP Morgan, right, all of these people. These are the first what we would call industrial capitalists. These are people who are making, these are, this is when the first billionaires uh, you know, crop up in the United States, right, is the end of the 19th century. And these are people who are making ungodly sums of money. And the reason why they are is because they are beginning to control the levers of industry, Right. They are kind of building the railroads that crisscross the United States, they are building the factories that cheaply produce the goods that everyone in America buys. Right. They are building the kind of financial schemes that allow for the lending of money and, the, and banking. Right. All of these things are happening at the end of the 19th century. And so what we see is a massive stratification of wealth where so much of the available wealth of the United States rises to the top, okay? And this is what we mean when we say gilded. Something that's gilded has a very, 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 very thin layer of gold right on the surface and then underneath it may as well just be shit, right? But it's some cheaper metal, right? Something that's gilded has a very, 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 very thin layer of a precious, beautiful metal like gold. Everything under that very, very thin layer is very cheap okay so why do we call this period the gilded age it's because all of the wealth rises to what we would now call the quote unquote one percent right all of the wealth lies exclusively with what we would now call the one percent right nobody under the one percent has really generational wealth and the reason why is that these robber barons these industrial capitalists are using the labor of the working class to consolidate their own riches, right? Okay, so this is the last thing we'll mention, and then we'll just kind of come back to this on Wednesday to talk about the Civil War, because I know we're running out of time. But the last thing we'll ask then is, why would realism be um, the literary technique or the literary style that we would want to use for this time period where, uh, you know, socioeconomic classes are stratifying. All the wealth is rising to the top, but everybody below is
1: really poor. Why would realism be the the technique or the style for this period? We have like, you know, people who are as young as 12 working in factories like this young gentleman here. Why would realism be the literary style for this period?
2: I think because you can't really sugarcoat a lot of what was going on in that time. So to be realistic as possible is their only option.
1: Right. Exactly.
0: And this is why we see something like the jungle being published in this time period is you can't sugarcoat the fact that like all of the meat we eat in the United States is infested with maggots, right? Like you can't sugarcoat that stuff. You can't sugarcoat child labor, right? What you need is to have a lifelike, truthful, realistic accounting of the situation that allows us to see America for what it is, and what it is is a place of intense poverty, where the vast majority of people are struggling to get by, even as the richest become richer and richer and richer and richer and richer off the backs of the people below them. Romanticism as a literary style and a technique just doesn't seem capable of representing that situation. Okay, Okay, so we'll stop there. And we'll, we'll start back up uh, with a little rehearsal of these historical contexts before we get into our first kind of realistic uh, story that we're going to read for Wednesday.
1: But any questions, comments, or thoughts before we go? All right, good to see y'all. Um, have a good week. Be in touch if you need, Okay.